0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Edgar Rice Burroughs mini podcast. My name is Tim DeForest, and right now we are using the mini podcast to look at books by authors other than Edgar Rice Burroughs that were either contemporaries of Burroughs or perhaps came a little earlier and might have influenced his own writings. Now today we're going to be doing part two of what I originally said would be a four-part look at Jules Verne's 1864 novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Actually, we're going to finish it up after just three parts. So this will be part two. There will be a part three coming soon, and then we will be, do- we will be done with our discussion of the novel. Now I'm going to pick up right where we left off last time with the assumption that you have listened to the previous mini podcast. So if you haven't, Stop now, jump back to the previous episode, listen to that one, and then rejoin us here. And we pick up in what is chapter 14 in my translation, titled The Real Journey Commences. Professor Leidenbrook, Axel, and Hans begin their descent into the shaft that they found uh, by simply dropping their more durable equipment down and then rigging ropes in such a way as they can pull those ropes down after them. Uh, after they've descended themselves, carrying the fragile equipment in, in backpacks. Now, this is indeed where the real journey begins. I will say up front at this point that I think I was really being a bit too harsh in my judgment of Axel when I talked about the early chapters of this book in the last episode. He does complain sometimes, but he doesn't come across as the incessant whiner I remembered him being when I first read this book a few decades ago. He's part of the team, and he does his share of the work. Now, they descend down the shaft, and over the next few chapters, they tramp along an underground passage that slopes downward. Axel was convinced that the temperature would rise rapidly the deeper they descended below the Earth's surface, but this doesn't happen. After a few days, though, they haven't found a source of water, and the supply they are carrying begins to run low. The professor, though, is optimistic that they will eventually find a source of water. They come to a cross path, and the professor more or less randomly picks a direction. After some time, though, it seems apparent that the tunnel they chose is sloping upward and getting into an area where the surrounding rocks suggest they won't find any water at all. The professor here refuses to admit he might have chosen unwisely and he insists that they continue. His stubbornness, as we'll see, nearly gets them all killed from lack of water. I mostly like Leidenbrook as a character, but here he clearly makes poor decisions as the expedition's leader, and I don't think he's ever properly called out, uh, out for it, either by Axel or by Hans. Of course, Hans never says anything, so um, that's not surprising. Now, when the tunnel they're following runs to it runs to runs into a dead end, They finally turn back. By now, they've had to put themselves on short water rations. Soon, they're completely out of water. I do want to give Leidenbrook credit in that he saves the last few sips of water that they have for Axel, but it really doesn't excuse his earlier stubbornness. It's Hans who saves them. When they hear water rushing on the other side of of a tunnel wall, the big icelander attacks the wall with a crowbar. Soon, water's squirting out, and forming a stream that runs down the tunnel they're now in, providing them with a source of water as they continue. So everything seems okay now as they continue on their journey and they're now descending again. Soon after that, though, Axel becomes separated from the others after they enter a large cavern. He trips and his light breaks, and this leaves him in pitch darkness. He does despair before long, but. I can't count this I can't count uh, this as him whining too much. He's lost in absolute pitch darkness without any hope of succor. Despair is understandable. But he is saved. A weird bit of acoustics allows him to hear Leidenbrook and Hans calling for him, even though they're several miles away. They're able to gradually reunite and the journey continues. Now this this is where we get to a really cool part of the book. They come to an underground sea or ocean. It's obviously large and they don't know how large at first. There's a forest of giant mushrooms nearby, along with fossilized wood that Hans uses to build a raft because Leidenbrook is determined to keep going in the same direction they have been, and that means crossing the sea. The roof of the cavern is high enough to allow for actual weather patterns, and electric currents in the clouds provide continuous light It's like non-stop lightning. Um, They're they're no longer traveling in the dark depending on their small portable lights. Now, Verne always took pride in being scientifically accurate in everything he wrote. Here, I think he's really stretching anything that he probably believed could actually exist. But there are some times when you're writing a novel where you have to go with the rule of cool rather than the rule of of realism. And I think Verne makes the right decision. Um, Just the image of this lake, with perpetual lightning above giving it light, um, is pretty awesome. Um, Continue to get some awesome bits. By now, they've traveled far enough to be hundreds of miles away from Iceland, and it puts them actually somewhere under the Atlantic Ocean. They're also many miles below the surface. So as I said, Leidenbrook is insisting that they continued uh, on the same direction by crossing what they've dubbed the Central Lake, figuring it can't possibly be that far across. He's wrong about that. The sea voyage aboard the raft lasts for days. They catch some fish, uh, which proves that there is life uh, below the surface of the earth, and it also proves to be of a species thought to be long extinct. And then in what's one of the most entertaining parts of the book, they find that larger extinct creatures exist in the sea as well. They witness an epic battle between an Ithiosaurus and a Polesiosaurus. And this may be the first time that prehistoric, large prehistoric creatures, um, analogous to dinosaurs, have appeared in fiction. That's something certainly that uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs will be drawing on constantly in his books. Now, soon after this battle, they spot what they think at first is an even larger monster that seems to be squirting water up through a water spout, like a whale. But as they get closer, they realize it's just, it's an island uh, that has a a geyser on it. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 31 in the translation I'm using, which was titled The Sea Monster. Now, I know that I've breezed through a big chunk of the novel in just a few minutes, and that is because the characters themselves don't do a lot other than to continue to walk or float forward. They simply witness the battles between the two prehistoric creatures. They witness the lake. Um, they do endure some dangers and have to think their way out of some situations. But they're not doing a lot of action-adventure stuff. Now, I still love the character of Hans, who stoically continues forwards with the other two and simply does whatever's necessary, regardless of how bizarre the world around him has become. But the characters are largely reactive rather than proactive. As my wife Angela wisely pointed out, it's an adventure novel, but it's not an action adventure novel. Now, I'm still enjoying the novel, because Vern's enthusiasm for exploration and learning things shines through, Uh, We see this trait both through Leidenbrook and, despite his occasional complaining, through Axel. Also, Vern has created a pretty cool underground world. As I said, the the idea of that central lake lit up by perpetual lightning is just awesome. But granted, I uh, haven't yet read the last 25% of the book yet, and that's yet to come. But so far, I would not put this book on the same level as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Perhaps this is in part because Captain Nemo Nemo is one of the best fictional characters ever created, and that the characters in 20,000 Leagues are able to be a little bit more proactive in in their journey. Um, Though I concede that much of 20,000 Leagues is an account of underwater exploration with the characters often being just fairly inactive observers. Even within that context, they get to do stuff. Whether it's fighting squids, taking undersea walks, or hacking their way out of icebergs, The characters in 20,000 Leagues just have more opportunities to do things other than just travel. I guess what I'm saying is that Nemo Nemo would take Professor Leidenbrook in a fight. Journey is a good book, but it's not Verne's best. Still, it's been decades since I last read it. And as I said, I still have the last 25% of it to read. So I'll be back soon to let you know what I think. Once again, my name is Tim DeForest. Uh, Please visit my blog at Comics Old Time Radio and other cool stuff. You can also find a link to my Amazon.com authors page there. And keep an ear out for future mini-episodes and for upcoming full-length episodes in which I, Jess Terrell, and Scott Stewart will discuss a book of Edgar Rice Burroughs in detail. As always, thank you.